Welcome, everyone. I, I, as I say, I always enjoy hearing the warm chatter between our guests, and we're always proud to be able to bring everyone together to not only hear our special guests in their presentations, but also get a chance for everyone to come together and share a meal and get a chance to see your friends and colleagues. So a warm welcome to you all. Thank you again for joining us. And now please join me in welcoming our television viewers. Today's program will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. And we'd also like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, and VVC for streamlining today's event. Again, my name is Danny Asaf, and I have the privilege of serving as the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto for this season and the honour of being your host here today. And again, a warm welcome to you all. For over 119 years, the Canadian Club has been proud to provide Canadians with this very closely guarded, non-partisan platform for the free and open exchange of ideas that impact our daily lives. Through our programs and our events, including our youth and young leaders programs, our diversity partnerships, our joint events, and our, social and social me and our media and social media opportunities, we are proud to provide you with access to dynamic social, business, and political figures from abroad and here at home. I also invite you to stay connected to the Canadian Club via our website at canadianclub.org and also ask you to join our conversation via Twitter at CDNCLBTO. I would also now like to take a brief moment to recognize and thank today's event sponsors, Bruce Power and Norton Rose Fulbright LLP. Thank you very much for your support. It's always a pleasure to take a moment to recognize our sponsors as a non-for-profit organization that has been around for a very long time. We count on their support and we thank our sponsors today. Also, I'd like to again thank Air Canada, our official airline sponsor. And finally, I would like to recognize a group of youth and young leaders from U of T's School of Public Policy and Governance who are here with us today and sponsored by Bell. Uh, may I ask them to please stand and recognize, be recognized. Thank you for joining us. It's always nice to have a group who represents our future. Now it's my honor to introduce today's guest speaker. Now, regardless of where we sit on the political spectrum, we're all interested in progress. Progress, obviously, for ourselves, progress for our children, and progress for our communities. And clearly, it's important that there are strong ideas to back that progress, because often it leads to change. And change can be difficult, because it takes you from a point that you know to a point that is unknown and less unknown. And that's where leadership counts. That's where leadership, we rely on strong leadership to give us clear guidance and also implement these ideas towards progress. And today, we have a key player in our efforts to strive for progress on our, all our behalf here in Ontario. Patrick Brown, 
who serves, who also serves as the MPP for Simcoe North, has lived leadership and breathed politics since his youth. He served in his younger days as vice president on the executive of the FC Party of Ontario. He also served two terms as president of the Progressive Conservative Youth Federation. And in 2000, he would be elected to Barry City Council at the age of 22. And three years later, he was re-elected with 72% of the votes. From there, in 2004, a lawyer by training who graduated from Windsor Law School then made a run for a federal seat. And in 2006, on his second attempt, he won a race and became the Member of Parliament for Barrie and was again elected in 2008 and 2011. And each time he was re-elected, it was with more votes and a larger margin. And he garnered almost 60% of the votes in his last federal election in 2011. And in addition to all of that, he has served his community in various ways with distinction, helping raise millions of dollars for local charities, including the Royal Victoria Hospital. And with that impressive record at that young age, then he decided to take on a new challenge. And after serving his federal riding for nine years, he resigned in 2015 after winning the leadership of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party and becoming leader. And then, of course, won his by-election in September for Simcoe North. And he has not taken this responsibility lightly. He has gone on an important drive to focus his party and to focus his message for the future of Ontario and to help us all see this better prog progress that we all wish to see. And on that note, I would like to introduce the official leader of the opposition, the leader of the Progressive Party of Ontario, Mr. Patrick Brown. The Canadian Club platform is yours. Well, thank you, uh, Danny, for that kind uh, introduction, and thank you for this opportunity to be before this uh, distinguished club uh, this afternoon. Uh, but before I start, I wanted to recognize uh, we have many members of the Progressive Conservative Caucus uh, from Queen's Park who all came here today, and if I could ask them uh, to stand now. I am very fortunate to have such a hard-working, terrific caucus uh, in our provincial legislature, uh, and uh, it's great to have so many of them here today. Uh, two other people I wanted to recognize just briefly. Uh, I wanted to recognize uh, Carolyn Lapham Marooney, uh, who uh, is someone that I've got great admiration for. What she did with the Shoebrox uh, project, helping vulnerable women across Canada, I think is an inspiration. So thank you, Carolyn. even if her sons are Montreal Canadiens fans. Uh, uh, and, uh, and Paul Godfrey, who brought us the Toronto Blue Jays. Always great to see Paul Godfrey.
No, so it has been a quite uh, a two years uh, running for the leadership in the last year uh, as party leader. Uh, and since Steve Pakin is here today, I'm going to I'm going to say a story. When I when I ran for uh, the leadership of the PC party, the first poll that came out had me at one percent, and the margin of error was three um, percent, which is which is a tough place to start. Um, and I was so unknown that I bumped into Steve Pakin on a plane and introduced myself, and he said, "Who are you again?" Uh, and and you think Steve Pakin knows everyone, uh, uh, but uh, it it uh, it is an honor uh, to be here. Uh, it's been quite uh, a year uh, in, the, in the legislature, um, and I thought I would uh, touch briefly on the issues that we've been raising in the provincial legislature in the state of Ontario uh, today. And, you know, being an opposition leader, uh, I knew would be a challenge, but the scope, the magnitude uh, of, the, of the mismanagement uh, that we've had to uh, deal with and raise at Queen's Park has, uh, has even shocked, uh, shocked me and our caucus. Uh, when we, we decide what questions to pose at Queen's Park, um, just think of some of the ones that we've had to deal with in the last year. For the first time in Ontario's history, we have a government where the debt has now surpassed $300 billion. We pay $1 billion a month in interest payments. You know, we have a, a government, according to the Financial Accountability Officer, uh, whose revenues projections are $4 billion off. We have a government that kicks 2,200 kids off the list for IBI therapy for children with autism. We have a, a government that floated a cabinet document uh, two, a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, to ban natural gas, which would cause every home to have cost $3,000 more a year. Um, so when, when you talk about the, the scope of our responsibility and the issues to raise, uh, it, it, is, it is overwhelming uh, the, the amount of challenges that we're seeing the province in. Simply put, life is harder. Life is harder over the duration of this Liberal government. They are a tired, self-interested government that has lost its way. Ontario deserves a government that puts the needs of Ontarians first, a government that works hard to help Ontario families and businesses reach their full potential. Ontario today, according to the Conference Board of Canada, has the second highest tax burden in the country. Every year since 2003, economic growth has lagged in Ontario behind the national average. And according to recent uh, assessments, private sector investment is set to decline by another 8% in the year to come. And new policies like the ORPP and cap and trade, which will, will make it even more difficult to drive business investment to the province of Ontario. One recent uh, report, survey said that only 30% of Ontario businesses believe the province is on the right track. Now, I could go on and on and on about some of the challenges Ontario uh, is facing and my criticisms of the government, but that's not what I want to do today. Um, we cannot define ourselves be, by not being the Liberals. We need to highlight uh, as a party and as official opposition the path that we want to take, the direction we want to take for the province. As the new Progressive Conservative Premier in Manitoba recently said, Brian Pallister, it's the government's duty to replace doubt with optimism, disharmony with unity, fear and anxiety with hope and opportunity. And as an opposition, we need to reflect on the change we want to be, the type of government we want to build. 
And we know that won't be easy. The challenge that Ontario faces is significant. But I want to spend some time today highlighting the direction we would take. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about traveling the province uh, is, is, you, is you listen. And you listen relentlessly. You hear people's stories. You hear what the challenges are to build a small business, what the challenges are the government puts before you. And, and from that travel, from that listening, um, I want to touch upon four pillars of economic development, four areas that if Ontario got right, we could turn the, the corner, that we could make Ontario prosperous again. Because we all know Ontario doesn't have to settle for being a province that receives equalization payments. Ontario doesn't need to settle for a province that loses 350,000 manufacturing jobs. And so the four pillars that I want to highlight are on red tape, are on investing in infrastructure, are on affordable energy, and on dealing with the uh, skills mismatch we have in Ontario and evolving our education system. So I'll start off with my first pillar of economic development, uh, red tape. And, and let me share with you a quote from Satinder Chera, uh, Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Satinder said, our members tell us that the excessive red tape is their second highest priority after taxes. So anything that can be done to make things easier for small businesses will help grow the economy and create jobs. Ed Clark uh, addressed the Toronto Board of Trade, and normally the government really likes to listen to Ed Clark. So let's, let's share with what Ed Clark had to say. He said, Ontario has 380,000 regulatory requirements for businesses, almost double the number in some provinces. While the number is staggering, the structure and complexity of compliance is even more problematic. It makes us less competitive. We are seen by foreigners and even by ourselves as a slow place to do business. Now, former Premier Mike Harris uh, is here. Uh, and when Mike was Premier, he built the Red Tape Production Secretariat. He realized to drive investment to Ontario, we needed to be responsive. We need to be agile as a, as a government. And you made it your business to cut red tape. Sadly, we have lost that approach. We are the capital in North America for a regulatory burden. We are the capital of red tape. And that has a real cost for business. And, and, and let me put it in, in these terms. And I'll, I'll share a story from India, of all places. The current Prime Minister of India is a fellow by the name of Narendra Modi. And when he was the Chief Minister in Gujarat, which is like being a, a Premier, he knew that his competition was the surrounding states. And he needed to drive investment to Gujarat. So he needed to cut red tape to give a slight advantage to Gujarat. And he read a story in the front page of the papers that Tata, the largest auto company in India, was going to build their new car in West Bengal. 50,000 jobs. But it was going to take them a year and a half to get their approvals through. A year and a half would be uh, uh, fast in Ontario, by the way. Uh, but it was going to take a year and a half. And in India, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. And so he sent a text to the owner of the company, Ratan Tata, and said, move to Gujarat. I'll have all your approvals done in three days. They moved 50,000 jobs from West Bengal to Gujarat. 50,000 jobs because they were better on red tape. They were better on the regulatory burden. And unfortunately, because of red tape in Ontario, we're becoming the West Bengal of this equation. We are bleeding 
jobs and opportunity because of this regulatory burden. Let me give you an example. In Mexico, the approval for an auto plant takes up to 19 months. It's double that in Ontario. And a perfect example is Nissan, where they, where they mentioned that it takes double the time for approvals in Ontario. Recently, the owner of an auto parts company told the London Free Press that he has to comply with 1,500 government regulations simply in an auto parts company. The Windsor-Essex Chamber of Commerce, uh, and Ernie Eves will like this because he's a Windsor uh, alumni, but the Windsor-Essex Chamber of Commerce noted that the environmental assessment on a transit project is going to take five years. Five years. That's longer than it's going to take the Maple Leafs to make the playoffs. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be... We'll, We'll be three years into a progressive conservative government by the time. Um, but in all seriousness, it, it is a job killer. You know, one of the first things I did as leader of the party is I went up to the, the ring of fire with MPP Vic Fideli. And there was a mining company there that said their, the terms of reference on their EA, which they were told would take 45 days, was taking three years. In my riding of Simcoe North, a provincial um, a, a municipal artery off a provincial roadway is taking two years. We're too slow. We have to be faster. And that is one of the ingredients that businesses will look at when they say, do they want to be in Ontario? The second, the second aspect of economic development I wanted to talk about uh, is investing in infrastructure. Uh, and I'm going to share a quote from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Transportation affects people's everyday lives. It also plays an important role in Ontario's economic growth and development. Ontario has a significant transportation infrastructure deficit, which is resulting in increased congestion, decreased business productivity. The Toronto Board of Trade said that the cost of congestion is $6 billion and is going to rise to $15 billion just in the GTA alone. And the C.D. Howe Institute says that congestion, the suffocating congestion in our region has a wage loss price tag of $1.5 billion and will grow to $5 billion. And so when we look at economic development, one thing we must look at is moving product to marketplace. Sure, it's a quality of life issue, but from a business perspective about driving investment to Ontario, businesses need to know they've got routes, transportation corridors to get their market uh, to get their product to market. And, and what I find with the current approach to infrastructure is sort of like Groundhog Day, that movie. Uh, it seems to be announcements, press releases, photo ops, but we're not actually building infrastructure. You know, let me give you some examples. The Kitchener, uh, all way, two way go. That was announced before the last provincial election. It would be a priority and done right away. It's not there. After the Scarborough by-election, there was the Scarborough uh, subway extension. Don't try to go on it. It's not, it's not there. Uh, and, and, and the Ring of Fire, the transportation corridor, it's been announced three times in five years and not a foot, not a single foot of pavement has been laid. We can't simply talk about infrastructure. We actually have to invest in infrastructure.
A progressive Conservative government would develop evidence-based infrastructure plans within the mandate that they were elected. Uh, we are going to actually make promises and report to you on their progress. Right now in Ontario, we've seen the infrastructure plan go from four years to eight years to 12 years. They're, they're now making promises of projects that are going to start in 12 years. I want to see a government that can be accountable for the infrastructure projects that they're going to promise the province of Ontario. I want to see a pathway that we can show businesses and we can highlight that gridlock's not going to get worse, that we're going to have concrete, tangible plans of how we're going to turn the corner. And it's not just on, on road infrastructure. It's not just on ground infrastructure. Getting product to marketplace uh, is also about air. And since Air Canada is one of the sponsors, that's, uh, that's very uh, appropriate. But the government of Ontario decided to increase the fuel aviation surcharge by 150%. That's the exact wrong approach. I'm going to look at finding ways to make us slightly better than other provinces and states, not slightly worse. BC gets this. BC actually removed the fuel aviation tax and immediately in 2012, and immediately after removing it, they had 20 airlines with international flights added to the Vancouver airport, resulting in 4,400 jobs. When we raised the fuel aviation surcharge in Ontario, the head of the Buffalo airport said it was the best day, the best day in the airport's history. I don't want to be making it easier for our competition. We should be looking at every way possible to create an Ontario advantage. The third pillar of economic development is affordable energy. And my energy critic, John Yakubuski, would certainly agree with that because he's up in the legislature every single week uh, highlighting this. But let me share with you a quote, um, not from John Yakubuski, as much as I'd like to, John, but I'm going to share a quote from the Fraser Institute. The Fraser Institute uh, had a report published in January of this year, and it said the effects of the high electricity costs have on the province's business and industries are one important reason why Ontario has not been a place to prosper in recent years. The Auditor General in uh, her report said that because of political intervention and political overruling of the energy sector, Ontario families, seniors and businesses have been overcharged by $37 billion. And I don't believe the government fully appreciates the challenge they've put, uh, they've put Ontario families and businesses in. You know, you hear stories of Extrata going from Ontario to Quebec because of energy prices. Our energy prices are three times that of Quebec, double that of Manitoba. Um, we're not competitive. And we have the fastest rising electricity prices in North America. And yet this government, despite having a giant surplus, keeps on signing contracts for energy we don't need. I think it's a pretty simple principle we should, we should follow. Let's not sign contracts that we're going to have to sell at pennies on the dollar. Despite giving away $2 billion in the last two years, the government just signed 16 more renewable contracts that we're going to have to give, just like we have for the last two years. We're going to have to sell at pennies on the dollars to, to Michigan, to, to Quebec, to New York, I don't want us to be the ministers of economic development for Michigan, for New York, for Quebec. It's our job to be creating an Ontario advantage. Not only are we putting that cost on your bills, we're making energy cheaper for our competition. Think about that. 
It's almost incredulous. It's almost that you can't believe it, but that's what's happening in Ontario. And as the Auditor General said, it's strictly for political calculations. It's strictly for the appearance to be green rather than actually actually trying to create an environment that works for businesses. Frankly, in some, in some, in some instances, we, we've had to turn down our own hydro capacity because we've signed all these deals for energy that we don't need. And I think what, what highlights how out of touch the government is on energy is I asked Charles Souza, the Liberal Finance Minister in the legislature, I said, you know, I have someone with a electricity bill for a hydro bill for $113 for using no no energy. Uh, can you explain that? And the finance minister's response is he didn't know about that bill, but his bills are going down every month. I don't know what deal he gets, but hydro bills are not going down in Ontario. <laughs> and if we can get the deal he gets, I think everyone in Ontario would sign up for it. You know, the Federation of Northern Municipalities uh, uh, passed a resolution calling on the government to help with energy prices. Uh, and I, uh, I asked the energy minister, I said, well, what can we do about skyrocketing energy prices in northern Ontario? It's the, the motion that all the municipal leaders passed. And his response in the legislature was, electricity rates for industrial customers in northern Ontario are the lowest in North America. Unfortunately, no one in northern Ontario can find out where they can get that deal. Um, so energy prices are a huge challenge. Uh, it, it, you look at the industrial rates in Ontario. It's $76 to $94 per megawatts. That's compared to $54 in New England, $32 in the Midwestern United States. So when you look at locating in Ontario, when you look at locating Ontario, this is going to be one of the ingredients you look at. No wonder Goodyear didn't do their expansion in Napanee. And, and let me, let me highlight this, too, about the different approaches to energy that progressive conservatives and liberals would have had, as Jim Wilson likes to heckle on the legislature in a nice way. Uh, he says that uh, Jim constantly reminds the government that progressive conservative governments never sold energy at a loss, that Premier Ernie Eves and Premier Mike Harris never sold energy at a loss and would never have even contemplated it. But we do that every single month of the year with this government. We have to get our energy policy right or it's going to continue to result in businesses saying there is an Ontario disadvantage, that we don't want to be here. You know, Sergio Marconi from Fiat Chrysler said there's a cost to doing business in Ontario, and that's why they're not looking at additional investments here. He talked about the payroll tax, but he also talked about energy prices. I want us to be slightly better than all our competitors. We can't, we can't hear business leaders talk about an Ontario disadvantage. I want to be able to go out and send that message to businesses all over the world that you want to be in Ontario. This is the place that's the easiest jurisdiction to operate your business, but that's not our brand today. And that's why these pillars of economic development are so important. You know, my last pillar of economic development uh, is about education. I think I surprised some people when I named myself our party's uh, education critic. And it may be because I'm a son of a, a retired teacher and, and, and principal, uh, but I really believe that education is the, the building blocks of, of creating a, a prosperous society. Uh, and there are steps we need to take on education that we're not taking. Fifty years ago, Bill Davis spoke in the Ontario legislature about evolving the education system to meet the labor market demands of today. 
Bill Davis helped build the college, the college infrastructure, the educational system we have with the, with the colleges, recognizing we need more people in skilled trades. We haven't seen that evolution in Ontario. And because of it, we are graduating young people for jobs that don't exist today. We are graduating young people for jobs that existed 10 and 20 years ago. The Conference Board of Canada uh, and the Ontario Chamber of Commerce says that the skills shortages cost our economy 24.3 billion in foregone GDP and 3.7 billion dollars in provincial tax revenues each year. So l- l- let me explain that. Last year we graduated 9,000 teachers for 5,000 teaching positions. We are intentionally graduating young people for jobs that do not exist. Can you imagine that coming out of school with a significant student loan and not having any opportunity, any avenue to have a job in what you studied? We need to see our education system evolve. You know, I I went to Kitchener-Waterloo and met with the tech sector there uh, with MPP Michael Harris and met with a company Desire to Learn, $100 million valuation, and they told me that half their employees they get from California we don't teach the deep programming that they need. And I asked him, why aren't we teaching that? And he said, that's, that's a great question. Other provinces get it. British Columbia just added coding to their curriculum, understanding we need enhanced computer literacy amongst young people. But we're treading water in Ontario. You know, I went up to Cambrian College in Sudbury. There was more jobs than grads in their power line program. I went to um, visit... Uh, Algonquin College in Pembroke with John Yakubuski, and there was more jobs than grads in the radiation safety program. We need to gear young people for the jobs that exist. But Kathleen Wynne's new uh, uh, free tuition, it's actually $3,000, but as she talks about free tuition, that's not, that's for more arts degrees, more philosophy degrees. If you want to use the tuition incentive for engineering, you can't. Yet we have engineering firms telling us that 52% of them can't find the employees they need in Ontario. We need more engineers, but we don't graduate them. So I have a a simple suggestion. Why don't we give educational incentives in the careers where there's actually jobs? It seems logical, but we don't do that in Ontario. According to KPMG and the Ivy School of Business, 28% of Canadian business leaders identify talent attraction as a primary challenge, a primary strategic challenge. So that's why education is my fourth pillar of economic development. I want to make sure that our education system graduates young people for the jobs that exist in Ontario today. If we get that right, that can be a difference maker in our province. So what does a more prosperous Ontario look like if we get all our economic fundamentals right? And and it's not easy to to do that. But once we get all those economic fundamentals right, what does a more prosperous Ontario mean? It means that you have a government that is careful with your money. It means children with autism get the IBI treatment they need as long as they need it. It means the 1,400 nurses we've seen cut from Ontario's hospitals in the last year will be once again caring for people. It means faster, a faster commute home to your family. It means fewer contract short-term jobs with no benefits and more full-time long-term jobs on which you can plan a future. It means the billions of dollars, the billion of dollars we spend a month on interest, 
will be invested into schools, hospitals, and our most vulnerable. It will mean people who work will get some benefit, not just special interests. This is going to be slow, hard work. It is not going to happen overnight. But we're not going to shy away from that challenge. I know that a more prosperous Ontario is possible. It is by working together. It is by listening relentlessly to industry experts. It is by putting the interest of Ontarians above the interests of political parties. It is through pragmatic, evidence-based policy. It is through bottom-up leadership, not top, the top-down style that has become the order of the day. It is through decisive action, never being afraid to tackle any issue head-on. I believe in my heart of hearts that we can build an Ontario that is a leader of confederation, an Ontario that we saw before that created millions of jobs, an Ontario that was the envy of Canada. We are up for that challenge. I'm excited for that challenge. Thank you for hearing me out today. You know, all year I've wanted to quote Seinfeld, so I do want to leave you on a high note. I want to leave everybody on a high note with that speech and those remarks. And we've learned a lot today. We did learn, well, number one, that even if you become premier, you're not going to be able to help the Leafs, but you can't win them all. Uh, we, did, we did learn you can heckle in a very nice way. That's good, too. And now Steve Pakin definitely knows who you are. But most importantly... What we learned today was about your plan, your plan on cutting red tape, your plan for infrastructure, your plan for energy, and your plan for education. The focus that you have brought to these issues that are important to us here today in Ontario and the hard work and the challenge that you're willing to take on gives us great confidence that with your efforts, with your continued work, and the contribution of your ideas today into the future, we will see that progress, we will see that more prosperous Ontario. Thank you very much, Patrick Brown. A pleasure again to have you. Thank you very much. And on that note, thank you all for your time. Thank you for joining us. This meeting is now adjourned. Have a great afternoon.